0: Tonight I want to engage in a breaking of several rhetorical rules with an incredibly lengthy introduction. I promise I'm really aware that this is long as an introduction. I want to talk about unbelief, the wicked nature of it, the soul-damning nature of it, and specifically unbelief that refuses to trust in the power of a sovereign and omnipotent God, the promises of a promise-making and keeping God, and the persons of the Godhead. Belief in Christ and the promises of God are commended everywhere in Scripture. And what I want to do this evening is I want to hold before your eyes a huge volume of Scriptures. But I promise it won't be as long as some. When we were in Las Vegas, we had two couples, two elderly couples. They're about the age that Sandy and I are now. But two older couples over for lunch one Sunday. One of them were tom and claire pollard tom was actually a rocket scientist he was dr tom pollard and he'd worked at the stanford nuclear propulsion lab or something like that he was brilliant and the other couple who i'll not name but they were discussing the length of my sermon that morning and the one man said the unnamed man said tom that was a long sermon that sermon was 62 minutes long i timed it and tom said that's nothing He said, I was there the day that Greg Bonson preached his first sermon at Manhattan Beach Presbyterian Church. And he said, his introduction was 60 minutes long. And he said, and in it, he used 60 scriptures. And so I felt a lot better. I thought, okay, mine was pretty short. Well, I'm not going to go Greg Bonson length tonight. But what I want you to do is I want you to keep one finger in Numbers 14 that Mr. Rios just read. And I want you to either listen to or look at a a large volume of scripture. And the reason why I want to bring so much scripture before us tonight is I want to convince you of this, that everywhere in scripture, belief in the power of the promises and the persons of the Godhead are commanded. And everywhere in scripture, unbelief stands condemned. Think about belief and some of the examples we have. For example, in Romans chapter 4, Abraham is given to us as an example of unbelief. And Paul writes of Abraham this way in Romans 4, and he says, He was not weak in faith. He did not consider his own body already dead, even though he was 100 years old, and the deadness of Sarah's womb. He did not waver at the promise of God in unbelief, but was strengthened in faith giving glory to God, being fully convinced that what was promised to him God was able to perform. Or think about the Gentile woman in Matthew 15, praised by Jesus for one thing, her dogged belief. We read in Matthew 15, a woman of Canaan came from that region and cried out to Jesus saying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely demon-possessed. But Jesus answered her, Not a word. And his disciples came and urged Jesus saying, send her away for she cries out after us. But Jesus answered and said, I was not sent except to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Then she came again and worshiped him saying, Lord, help me. But he answered and said, it's not good to take the children's bread and give it to the little dogs. She said, yes, Lord, even the little dogs get to eat the crumbs which fall from their master's table. Jesus answered to her and said, O woman, great is your faith. And her daughter was healed from that very hour. And those are just two examples, an Old Testament example, Abraham, this this dogged woman in the New Testament, of how belief and faith are blessed in every case. The great business assigned to you and I in this life by God himself is believing, believing specifically on the Lord Jesus Christ. All through the scripture, rhetorical questions are asked and answers are given about this. For example, in John chapter 6, we read, that men come to jesus saying what shall we do that we may work the works of god jesus answered and said this is the work of god that you believe in him who was sent or think of the philippian jailer crying out in the darkness of the of that dungeon cell in acts chapter 16 after the earthquake and paul and silas were brought out to him and his first word is sirs what must i do to be saved the first word out of the Apostle Paul's mouth is, believe. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. This is the tenor of all of Scripture. We're told in Hebrews eleven six, it is only by faith that we are able to please him. Now, at the same time, I want to hold up before you the antithesis. If, if belief is everywhere commended, unbelief is everywhere condemned. Think in the Psalms. The Psalms are rife with illustrations of when God condemns unbelief. In Psalm 78, we read a historical Psalm. Psalm 78, we read they tested God in their heart. They spoke against God. They said, doubting, can God prepare a table in the wilderness? Behold, he struck the rock. The waters gushed out. Can he give bread also? Can he provide meat for his people? The Lord heard this and was furious. So a fire was kindled against Jacob because... They did not believe in him and did not trust in his salvation. Paul, in in describing and explaining the largest example of wholesale unbelief and its condemnation, speaks of Israel. In Romans 11, and he's he's answering the question, what will become of Israel? And Paul says, viewing salvation like a, a tree, he says, Israel has been broken off. In Romans chapter 11, and he says the reason why is simple. It comes down to one issue because of unbelief. Paul says to the Gentiles, if some of the branches were broken off and you being a wild olive tree were grafted in among them and with them became a partaker of the root and fatness of the olive tree, don't boast against the branches. But if you do boast, remember that you don't support the root, the root supports you. You'll say then, these are Gentiles, branches were broken off that I might be grafted in. And Paul says, well said. Because of unbelief, Israel was broken off and you stand by faith. And if they do not continue in unbelief, they'll be grafted in. God is able to graft them in again. But Paul says, here's the simple answer. Why has there been a massive falling away of the Jews since the day of Pentecost, Paul says it all comes down to one issue: hardened unbelief. In fact, unbelievers—and I know in a room this size, I'm speaking right now, this minute—even the covenant children who say, "Well, well, Carl, I—I I don't have a problem. I'm—I'm I'm just a kid. I've grown up in the church. I've really never declared myself. I've never confessed my faith. But I'm just a kid." Unbelievers are condemned already. Jesus says in John 3, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. And Jesus goes on in the same context to say, He who believes in him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already, because he's not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Unbelief has a future. In Revelation 21, John tells us who will not enter the kingdom of God. And he tells us in Revelation 21, he gives a, a list. He says, here's who will not enter the kingdom of God. The cowardly, the unbelieving, the abominable, murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters. And all liars have their part in the lake of fire, which burns with fire and brimstone. Tonight you say, I'm not a murderer. I'm not sexually immoral. I'll just, you know, I just have a hard time believing the Bible, believing in the power of the promise and the person of God. Revelation 21 is very clear that the residence of eternal wrath, that place of eternal wrath will be largely those who simply are unbelievers. In fact, the judgment that is sharpest and most severe is always on those who had the most light. Jesus, speaking to his home region, two towns, Chorazin and Bethsaida, says that it will be far worse for them in the judgment. For one reason, because they had light, they had exposure to him, and they did not believe. What I want to do tonight is I want to show you, I want to prove to you that that unbelief is wicked. It's not just intellectual games. That unbelief is immoral. It's immoral, first of all, because it will believe, unbelief will believe someone. It will believe God's enemies. It will believe the father of lies. Adam and Eve believed the serpent rather than God. They believed his wicked lie. You shall not die. The sin before the act of eating the forbidden fruit was heart unbelief. Unbelief presaged even the taking of the fruit. Unbelief is also immoral because it pushes away a free and a gracious offer of salvation. Unbelief has no parallel when it comes to ingratitude and stubbornness. It's unbelief is the man on death row refusing a pardon. It's the poor and naked man refusing the glorious spotless robes of Christ's righteousness. It's the starving man spurning the bread of life. How ungrateful and suicidal it is to reject a free offer from one who beckons with open arms and says, Come to me, all you who labor, and I will give you rest. Unbelief is wicked because it doubts God's power and ability to save. Unbelief is wicked and immoral because it says Christ died in vain. It disparages Christ's infinite merit as if he could not save. And even just for believers, unbelief will sabotage your prayer life. Remember what James writes in James chapter 1? If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all liberally and without reproach, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for he who doubts is like a wave of the sea. Driven and tossed by the wind, let not that man suppose he'll receive anything from the Lord, for he's a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. This is why the urgent plea of the author of Hebrews is this. Take care lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief, departing from the living God. All of that is introductory. Let's seek the Lord's help now as we prepare to open Numbers 14. Living God, help us so to hear your holy word, that we may truly understand, and that understanding we may believe, and believing we may follow in all faithfulness and obedience, seeking your honor, your glory in all we do, we pray through Christ our Lord, amen. We've begun our series on Joshua, the man, his life, and you'll notice that Joshua shows up in our text, the text Mr. Rios read a moment ago in Numbers 14, 1 through 10, and enfolding the life and ministry over, of Joshua over these several months, I want to shine the spotlight on unbelief, especially tonight. What does unbelief do and why? What does it look like? Now, let me remind you of a few things. Joshua was born a slave. His first few decades were spent in hard labor. But Joshua's whole nation, Israel, The people of God are in Egyptian slavery, and they cry out for deliverance. God hears and he remembers his covenant with their forefathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God calls Moses out of exile in the desert to be Israel's deliverer. And then God sends 10 successive plagues on Egypt, each more severe than the last one. Passover is instituted. The exodus occurs. Israel marches out of Egypt, loaded down with their possessions. Israel crosses through the Red Sea on the dry land while the pursuing armies of Egypt are crushed and drowned. Israel immediately begins to complain as soon as they're out of Egypt. In Exodus 15, we read of them crying out in thirst so the Lord provides water from a rock. In Exodus 16, we read of them complaining about being hungry so the Lord provides daily manna from heaven. Israel has their first real battle against Amalek, the sons of Esau. And Joshua distinguishes himself as he bursts onto the scene and leads Israel to victory. Israel then, in an act of glory and grace, receives the law from God in Exodus 20 from atop Mount Sinai. Then they rebel with the golden calf. The Lord purges the evil from the nation, and God raises up 70 men to assist Moses in the governance of Israel. Even Moses' brother and sister rebel. Our study of Joshua's life has brought us, in Numbers 13 and 14, to some of Israel's darkest days. I would dare say the darkest days are here in Joshua 7 with the sin of Achan. And we will spend a lengthy period of time in each of these texts. And in the cluster of events we're looking at, Joshua stands out as a heroic figure. He will be rejected by the unbelieving nation, but he'll be honored by the God who rewards faith and obedience This history is comprehensively recorded for us. We've already looked at Numbers 13. Look at Numbers 14 with me if we're to understand what shaped Joshua's life and career. Israel, you'll remember, has come to Kadesh Barnea. It sits on the southern edge of Canaan, and it's time for Israel to go in, to go up, to claim their inheritance, the conquest of Canaan. And so the nation of Israel sends spies. Actually, first of all, they demand spies to check out Canaan. This request was rooted in, you guessed it, unbelief. The Lord in long suffering agrees to order this. So one man from each of the 12 tribes is chosen to go on this scouting mission. Two of the 12 are marked by faith. Faith in the promises and the person the power of God. Just two. Caleb, the leader of the tribe of Judah, whose name means all heart, And Joshua, the leader of the tribe of Ephraim. And these 12 men are given a a clearly defined mission in Numbers 13. Go through the whole nation, look for population density, evaluate strength and weakness, analyze their cities, see if they're forest, and see if the agricultural land is productive. Bring some produce back for us to see. The spies set out in Numbers 13. They spend 40 days traversing the land of Canaan. It's a dangerous mission, but they all come back safely because they're providentially preserved. The spies return to Kadesh Barnea at the southern entrance of Canaan, and they confess in Numbers 13. They admit that the land is rich, and then 10 of the 12 spies counsel the nation to not go up, to not believe the promises of God that he will hand them this land. The ten spies' reasoning goes like this. Here's unbelief thinking. The Canaanites are too fortified, too strong, too large. And by so reasoning, the Israelite spies completely discount the promise and the presence of God. And so the nation, when we open Numbers 14, verse 1, the nation responds wickedly. Two million and more people wailing all night. Their unbelief is stubborn, irrational, and infectious. As we look at this historical incident, focusing on the first 10 verses of Numbers 14, I want to study seven traits of unbelief. And what I hope to do tonight is I hope to hold this text up like a mirror so that you might say, no, by the grace of God, God has delivered me from unbelief, given me saving faith, and it's my delight to believe God, believe his word. Or that you might do, by the mercy of God, you might say, I don't have saving faith in God's appointed Savior. I don't trust his promises. I don't believe his word. I don't trust his power. Carl, what must I do to be saved? So let me show you seven signs of what unbelief looks like. First of all, unbelief shows itself by complaining and grumbling. Look at verses 2 through 4 of chapter 14. All the children of Israel Complained against Moses and Aaron, and the whole congregation said to them, If only we had died in the land of Egypt, or if only we had died in this wilderness, why has the Lord brought us to this land to fail fall by the sword that our wives and children should become victims? Would it not be better for us to return to Egypt? And they said to one another, Let us select a leader and return to Egypt. Now this complaining If you think this is a one-off, this complaining rebellion was not the first time they did this. Just uh, a few days before, in Exodus 16, we read that Israel journeyed from Elam and all the congregation of the children of Israel came to the wilderness of Sin, which is between Elam and Sinai. The whole congregation of the children of Israel, by the way, we're given a timestamp that this is 45 days after the Exodus. They've only been out of bondage six and a half weeks. We read The whole congregation of the children of Israel complained against Moses and Aaron. Oh, that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt, when we sat by the pots of meat and when we ate bread to the full. You brought us out into this wilderness to kill the whole assembly with hunger. That wasn't the only time they'd complain. In Exodus 17... We read that the whole congregation once again complained where they camped in Rephidim. There was no water for the people. And the people contended with Moses and said, give us water that we may drink. And Moses said, why do you contend with me? Why do you tempt the Lord? And the people said to Moses, why have you brought us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? And so now we see it again. Look at verses 2 through 4 in Numbers 14. The whole nation, it seems, grumbles against Moses and Aaron. How were they to blame? Moses and Aaron hadn't harmed a soul. Review their history real quickly. Moses was the one who's used to deliver them from cruel bondage. Moses had worn himself out, we're told in Exodus 18, serving them. Moses had prayed and interceded for them, sparing them from the wrath of God, just a few chapters earlier in Numbers 11. And Moses had repeatedly arbitrated all their petty disputes, keeping them from one another's throats. Now they were at his throat. So from this example, we learn another, a second characteristic of unbelief. Unbelief, and listen to me carefully. Unbelief is inherently ungrateful. Look at Numbers 14.1. We read these words, all the children of Israel complained against Moses and Aaron. They didn't just kind of throw their complaints out in the air. Their complaints were directed against two men. And they're complaining against two men who had only done them good. Unbelief, showing its ingratitude. Unbelief will always find fault where there is none. And will do so in the face of huge debts of gratitude that is owed. Do you know what should have happened every time Moses and Aaron came out of their tents? There should have been a standing ovation. There should have been high fives. Because these were the men who delivered them. That never happened. Unbelief is selfish. Selfish never satisfied. In fact, my unbelieving friend, now I'm holding the mirror very close to your face. The truth suppressing unbeliever is always known by this, his ingratitude. Paul, speaking of the unbeliever in Romans 121, he talks about the truth suppressing unbeliever and he says, since the creation of the world, God's invisible attributes have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, even his eternal power and Godhead. So they're without excuse because although they knew God, they didn't glorify him as God, nor were they thankful. That's always one of the signs of the unbeliever is he's ungrateful. A third mark of unbelief. Remember, we're analyzing it in the deep dive, what unbelief will do, what it looks like, how you spot it. Third, unbelief is always antagonistic to God-appointed leaders. Look at verse 4 in our text. And notice what the Israelites say to one another. They say, Let us... Select a leader. They want congregationalism. They want a congregational meeting is what they want. Let us select a leader and return to Egypt. They didn't approve of God's called leader, Moses and then Joshua. These are rebels all breaking the fifth commandment, which is obey God's authorities that are set over you, beginning with parents and then elders and civil magistrates. So notice what they're saying. God, you've done a lousy job at appointing leaders. We can do better, and so we're going to hold a meeting, and we're going to select a leader, and we're going to make sure that the first point of his legislative agenda is go back to Egypt. Now, this shouldn't surprise us that unbelief is antagonistic to God-appointed leaders because unbelief is actually an attack on the throne of God. So we aren't amazed when the unbeliever is antagonistic towards those whom God has appointed to mediate his rule. Unbelieving children are antagonistic to parents, disobeying the fifth commandment. Unbelieving church members are antagonistic to their elders. For Joshua, after seeing this, after hearing these words in verse 4, It's not like he didn't hear it. He heard these these shouts, these discussions, these whispers, these meetings everywhere. Let us select a leader and return to Egypt. For Joshua, who is the anointed replacement for Moses, after seeing this, do you think he had second thoughts about ever wanting to take the reins of leadership? Because what Joshua will see until Moses dies, Joshua repeatedly sees, not once, not twice, but it seems as though it's dozens of times, outright mutiny on every hand we'll see later in our exposition that the Lord seems to heap up encouragements on Joshua when it's time to take over from Moses there are men in this room who the Lord is beginning to stir right now in terms of calling you to to the office to either the diaconate or the eldership let me be very honest with you brutally honest if you intend to serve God's people be prepared for antagonism and be prepared to be blamed, just like Moses and Aaron and later Joshua were, for many things that aren't your fault. Be prepared to pour yourself out, shepherding the flock and mediating disputes, then find all your labor utterly forgotten. Do I say this to discourage you? No. A thousand times no. But I want to be honest with you and not engage in a bait and switch by simply telling you, enter the eldership, and that's a fast track to being loved, appreciated, and affirmed by everyone. A fourth sign of unbelief. Unbelief displays irrationally contradictory desires. Did you hear that? Look at verses 2 through 4 once again. We read, All the children of Israel complained against Moses and Aaron, and the whole congregation said to them, Now track these. If only we had died in the land of Egypt. Or, on the other hand, if only we had died in this wilderness. Why has the Lord brought us to this land to fall by the sword that our wives and children should become victims? Would it not be better for us to return to Egypt? So faced with imaginary death, catch, catch where they are. They're standing on the border looking into Canaan. They're looking at these huge, carried by, by men, by poles, these huge chunks of grapes showing that it's a land flowing with milk and honey. As they look at that, faced with a ma- and they immediately think they are faced with death at the hands of the Canaanites. And so, here's their contradictory desires. If we go into Canaan, we'll die. So what we want is to go back to Egypt where we'll die. They now wish, look at verse 2, if only we had died in Egypt. What they're saying is, you know those firstborn who died on Passover night? Those are the guys who had it really well. They are envying the firstborn who were slaughtered, slaughtered, or they, they wish, according to verse two, that they had died in the wilderness. So notice what they say. We wish we had died in Egypt, or we wish we'd already died in the wilderness because we're about to die at the hands of the Canaanites. And if you're thinking, Carl, that's irrational, you've got it. Because unbelief is always irrational madness. That's the point. When you read verses 2 through 4, it's like talking to your four-year-old who's two hours past their bedtime and makes no sense at all. They're saying that God's mercy was all for naught, and it really wasn't so bad back in Egypt. Well, it was just fine, in fact. Matthew Henry says of this, they wish to die as criminals under God's justice rather than live... As conquerors in his favor, they wish to die for fear of dying. A fifth mark of unbelief. Unbelief is always discontent. Adam and Eve, of course, grew discontent and felt God was withholding something desirable from them. One thing desirable. And so they were discontent. And in their discontentment, they ate and sinned, plunging the whole race into sin and death. Now discontentment is as natural to the human heart as weeds are to the soil. When we're converted, we must learn, and learn early in the Christian life, that discontentment is sin, since it's rebellion against the sovereign, wise plan of God. It says discontentment is fundamentally saying God is not giving me his best. It accuses God of injustice, as if the judge of all the earth could ever do wrong. Discontentment accuses God of foolishness and lack of wisdom and cynically thinks that God has erred. Discontentment makes a man unthankful for all of God's gifts. Causes him to question, why is God withholding that from me? Instead of in rejoicing in what God has given you. Unbelief habitually says, because unbelief is discontent. Unbelief habitually says, it's better where I'm not. Discontentment is perhaps the leading symbol of unbelief. Israel, you'll notice as we go through this section of Numbers, Israel is discontent before, during, and after. What do I mean by that? When they were in Egypt, in slavery, they were discontent and they cried out. When they were in the wilderness, during the 40 years, they were discontent. When they finally get to Canaan, they are discontent. And so you say, is there a place where you could be content? And the answer is a thundering, no. Oh, oh, yeah, we could be content if we could go someplace else. But we can't be content here. Not in Egypt, not in the wilderness, not in Canaan. Remember what the Apostle Paul, an Israelite who had this covenantal generational sin flowing through his veins, what he writes in Philippians 4. I have learned in whatever state I am, to be content. I know how to be abased and I know how to abound. Everywhere and in all things I've learned, both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and suffer need. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And what Paul is teaching is, you can drop a believer in a Roman prison, you can put him on a desert island or in a cancer ward, and they know how to absolutely be satisfied. But you can deliver a lost man from bondage, rain food down from heaven, give them water out of a rock, and they will always refuse to be content. Let me ask you. Do you know anything of contentment? Or are you always saying, I I wish we could just do this. I wish I could just have that. Why did God give him that and not me? Do you know anything of that peaceful repose of contentment that says, my father is on the throne and he's given me exactly what is best for me. He's given me the right spouse, the right children, the right job. Well, he's even given me the right church, as knuckleheaded as those people at Woodruff are. Do you know anything of contentment? Because one of the clearest marks of unbelief is discontentment. The sixth characteristic of unbelief unbelief prefers to look backwards and revise history than to look forward in faith. Did you hear that? Unbelief prefers to look backwards and revise history than to look forward in faith. Israel's only been gone now a few months from Egypt and already they've revised history to see the, and say that their generations in Egypt were like a picnic at the beach. Unbelief can see the following child murder. Remember in Exodus chapter 1 and 2, their children are being murdered by Pharaoh. Unbelief can see child murder, unreasonable labor where their Egyptian masters whipped them and told them to make bricks without straw, and they can romanticize and revise it and call it a land flowing with milk and honey. Unbelief fantasizes about what was back there. Why do people go back to the world after having confessed Christ? They fantasize and say, you know, I didn't have it so bad then. In fact, I didn't have any problems until I started with Christ. They glamorize the past, and they forget what bondage to Satan and their lust was like. They conveniently forget the cruelty of the ungodly. And they convince themselves to go back. Is that you? Does the world seem glamorous to you? Do you miss the good old days? You know those days of profanity and drunkenness and addiction and heartbreak? Has the yoke of Christ gotten heavy and burdensome to you? Like Lot's wife, do you keep turning and looking back at Sodom? Let me remind you of the tyranny of Satan and the despair and hopelessness of your life before Christ. Don't look back on your unconverted life, your pre-deliverance life, with the slightest bit of fondness and affection. A seventh mark of unbelief. And I'll just say this, won't go into great detail, we'll hear more in days to come. Unbelief is always cowardly. What is one of the national sins as Israel comes and stands at the border, they're at Kadesh Barnea, they're looking into, they can see into Canaan. Unbelief makes men's heart and bravery flee. It weakens the knees. It makes them turn their backs and run from the challenges and opportunities God is providentially setting before them. How do we apply? Tonight, as you've seen unbelief under the microscope, recognize how ugly it is, how hateful and how soul-damning. The triune God tonight is calling you to turn away from unbelief and to trust him, to believe his word, believe his power, and believe his promises. Listen to what Paul writes in Romans 1.16. The gospel is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes. The writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews 11, Without belief, without faith, it is impossible to please God. The one who comes to him must believe that he is and that he is the rewarder of those who diligently seek him. The apostle Paul says to the inquirer in Acts 16, Believe. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. You heard David Rios read a minute ago in John 5. Jesus said, He who hears my word and believes has eternal life. Let let me plead with unbelievers tonight. Do you say, I'm afraid I look way too much like those people standing at the gateway to Canaan saying, "Could, could we just go back to Egypt? I know God has made promises, but I can't really believe them. They're too good that God's going to freely give us a land flowing with milk and honey. Maybe you're saying the same thing. Well, I know God promises to cleanse me from all my sins and forgive them and give me a new heart and give me eternal life. But the gospel is just too good. I can't believe him. My friend, let me plead with you tonight to believe in the power, the person, and the promises of God. Let's pray together. Lord, help our unbelief. Give us grace and draw us to rest upon your promises. Our faith is weak our steps are faltering, frequently we slide back towards unbelief. And so we ask tonight that you would water the seed of faith in our hearts that you planted and have mercy upon us. We pray in the name of the only object of our faith, Jesus Christ. Amen.